0: The whole room was just, i wasn't even in my room anymore. There was just magnificent light emanating from this beautiful, beautiful angel. And as she opened her arms, this scene appeared in the air, just beneath her feet. And this was very unusual. And the scene was what appeared to be a World War II fighter pilots in their planes firing at each other you know with that sound and then she actually showed me as the airplanes were being hit as the plane was heading to the ground at speed that the souls of pilots were lifting out of their bodies even before they'd hit the ground and she was collecting them and i could see the shadow of these you know what looked like humans being lifted up And they were heading straight up to her. And I thought, my God, she's the angel of
1: death. Welcome to the Spirit Sisters podcast. My name is Karina Machado and I'm the author of Spirit Sisters, women's true stories of the paranormal. In this podcast, I'll revisit the women behind my most unforgettable stories and unearth new tales to chill, intrigue, astound and offer hope. You'll hear first-hand accounts of ghostly visitors, near-death experiences, premonitions, hauntings and love more powerful than death. Whatever you believe about the afterlife, I invite you to open your minds and hearts as ordinary women reveal their extraordinary encounters. Hi everyone, thanks for joining me on the show. I'm your host, Karina Machado, and I'm so happy that you're tuning in today. I'm so excited to share today's episode that I'm just going to jump straight into it. My guest today is Josephine Martirana Nikotra, a spiritual light worker, tarot counsellor, and healer who lives in Sydney. I met Jo at a meeting of IANS, the International Association of Near-Death Studies, last year. She began to share a little of her story with me And I was utterly stunned by what I was hearing. Jo is going to share today an astounding story that encompasses a near-death experience, an angelic visitation, past life revelations, a miraculous physical healing, and so much more. Jo's NDE was the culmination of a severe illness she developed as part of PTSD, caused by a traumatic incident that took place while she was studying for her PhD in science education. This near-death experience is unlike any I've ever heard or read about, and its ramifications are still unfolding 22 years later, with the most recent piece of the puzzle falling into place only last year. I'm beyond excited to introduce you to Josephine. If you're fascinated by the idea of past lives, as I am, This episode is for you. Enjoy our conversation. Hi, Josephine. Welcome to Spirit Sisters. Hello, Karina. I'm uh, uh, very pleased to be here. We first met at IANS last year and you told me some of your amazing story. And from that moment, I knew I wanted to get you on the show so that you could share it with the audience. It's truly one of the most fabulous stories I've ever heard. And the way it just draws in various kinds of angles you know you've got the past lives you've got the NDE you've got the physical and emotional and and spiritual healing there's so much that it encompasses
0: Mm,
1: it does it's a it's a 20 years span okay so Josephine your story begins with a very serious mystery illness that uh, you Mm. suffered for three years and that led eventually to the NDE that we've just touched on so if you could please set this up for us and share who you were and where you were at in your life at the time, and I believe it was January 1996? That's correct. Okay. That's right. So when something yeah. happened that preceded you getting sick? Yes, that's right. I, um, I was doing my PhD at the time um,
0: and uh, I, was do- I was doing a PhD in, in science, um, in physics, And um, I had a supervisor, a professor, who uh, was um, looking after me and and I was doing my PhD through him. And uh, at the time, I hadn't realised that there was something not right in the sense that he only had female students. He didn't have any male PhD students. He had 10 female uh, PhD students. And it, it just didn't even dawn on me to question that. And leading up to my illness, I had an, a, a situation with him, a situation that led to a physical breakdown, not so much uh, an emotional breakdown, but a physical breakdown. Essentially, at the time, uh, PhD students are very much dependent on their supervisors in terms of you know, presenting your work for the first time at various conferences and possibly even publishing. And you are very dependent on the supervisor and that person's views. Uh, I was in my second year of the PhD and I had won a scholarship for the PhD and uh, I'd also gotten first class honors leading into the PhD. So I was quite confident with my work and we went to a conference at La Trobe, La Trobe University. And while we were there, I presented my work uh, which was an extension of um, my supervisor's um, research, he then presented after me. And I think he was not prepared very well for that presentation, but a lot of professors often just talk about their work and they don't necessarily have to be well prepared because they've got all the kudos, people know them, etc. I think I wanted to put in a good impression, so I had put all my effort into it and my my presentation went very successfully and I had a lot of questions during question time. People were very interested in my work. Now, unfortunately with my supervisor being not as prepared, he didn't get any questions during question time and I was doing an extension of his work. So that uh, obviously unsettled him. And when we got back to Sydney, he did not demonstrate to me that he was, unhappy in any way, shape or form. And in a very nonchalant and and normal manner, he called me into his office one afternoon and simply said, "Joe, could you please get all your work that you've been doing over the past two years? We'll go over it now and um, we'll see, you know, what direction uh, we need to take next. So I had absolutely no idea of what was about to happen. And I remember carrying all my books and walking in And I walked to his desk and and sat down. He was on the opposite side of me. He got up, went to the door and locked it. And that was my first moment of panic because, uh, A, that was very unusual. He'd never, ever locked a student into his office. And, two, in fact, he'd never closed his door. You know, he did both. And I remember being hit. In my gut, I knew that this was wrong and I, it was panic stations. Essentially, what happened was a tirade of verbal abuse that I had never been exposed to in my life before. He basically was not happy at all with my presentation and I knew at the time that I had been very successful because you can always tell how successful you are by the number of questions people ask you. And, and also, after the conference, many people came up to me or after that session and wanted to know more and, and that evening at dinner time, people would come up to me and talk to me about it. So I knew it was successful. So I was going through the trauma at the time, the mental and emotional trauma of why is this happening? You know, what, what have I done? And not being able to come to terms with with what he was saying to me and he was being quite verbally, uh, he was just being awful and he was threatening me as well at the time with the PhD, I had, I had a mortgage at the time. We'd just been married and we were almost living on the scholarship to pay off the mortgage. And the first thing he said to me was, I'll be reporting this. I had a, I think it was an ARC grant. I mean, it was so long ago, I can't remember, but it was an Australian research grant that I had. And he was basically saying things like, um, I'm going to report you and you're going to lose your scholarship. You will never present again. And as he was speaking like this, I knew that, for a person who was doing a PhD to never present again basically meant that I really couldn't get my PhD. So it was quite catastrophic. And, and also he was abusing me. He was saying that my presentation was bad and that everything that I had done in those two years was, um, was no good. He then opened the door and he, he had beaten me up emotionally to such a point that I remember begging him, to stay on with the PhD. The whole concept that I was this confident human being who uh, loved the project that I was doing, that I had an a direction for the project that was autonomous and self-initiated, that I had won a scholarship to do the PhD, that I had gotten grade one honours, you know, in the PhD, in the in the honours year to get into the PhD, first class honours, sorry. Uh, to get into the PhD. Uh, All of that just died in those moments. I remember being reduced to a begging sub-human being, pleading with him to keep the PhD, pleading with him not to report me, pleading with him that, you know, I, I had a mortgage and that we were living on that scholarship. So I just remember going to the loo as soon as I walked out with my books And, you know, look, I'll tell the audience I had terrible diarrhoea, And in hindsight, we now understand what actually happened at that moment. And I basically lost 90% of my gut gut flora, if not 95%. Now, this is 1996. Uh, We now know that, for instance, the astronauts on the space shuttle, when the space shuttle was uh, launching in, in those days in the 1990s, that they would often lose a large proportion of their gut flora just from the stress of it, from the launch. Now, in those days in 1996, there was very little information about leaky gut and what can happen to an individual when they lose large portions of their gut flora. But within a, f- a very short period of time, I developed a very severe life threatening disorder. I became salicylate and amine intolerant. For the audience, salicylates is a natural preservative in all fruits and vegetables. And it's natural to the fruit and to the vegetable. And so that meant that I couldn't eat any fruits or vegetables. I also became amine sensitive, which means amines are produced by proteinaceous food groups. So uh, things like cheeses, meat, chicken, pork. It's found mainly in all food groups that contain protein. And the more mature those food groups or the, or the longer they stay out, or depending on how they're cooked, the amine levels go up. So. You know, it doesn't take an Einstein to work out that not only could I not eat any fruit or vegetables, but I also couldn't eat any protein. Generally, with this disorder, there's varying degrees of salicylate and amine sensitivities. I developed the worst kind in the sense that my tolerance to all food dropped to extreme low levels. Now, in general, people in my situation are put on elimination diets where they um, allow the body to rest for a while so that you're not consuming these things that you're intolerant to, that, that cause a biochemical cascade of, of um, uh, free radicals and, and make you feel very, very sick. I mean, my symptoms at the time were what they call borderline anaphylactic reactions and the air passages swell, your heart starts beating like crazy and, and you could die. I was getting what they call borderline anaphylactic reactions. So I would get all the horrific warning signs that I feel like I'm about to die. Sometimes my tongue would swell. I'd break out in hives. My heart rate would go through the roof and I would also hyperventilate. Very rarely was it asthma, but it was generally hyperventilation and, and the intercostal muscles would cramp. So I would have a hell of a time breathing and I would literally feel like I was asphyxiating it was a horrific time. There was the elimination diet was ridiculous because I could there was nothing I could eat anyway. And the doctors initially said to me, "Oh, it may take three months for you to recover." Um, I lost a lot of weight. There was very there was literally, I think there was only five things I could eat at the time. Uh, milk was one of them because the amines were not high in milk. Um, I remember I could have a little bit of butter, and I could have some rice cakes, which were available at the time. It was it was just horrific. Anyway, three months later, I didn't get better. In fact, three years later, I was very seriously ill. By this stage, I had managed to introduce bread. I had managed to do that by having a tiny piece every day until I got to the stage where I could eat one slice of bread. And I had introduced, uh, a f- I think it was chicken, that I could poach um, as a protein source, and I could have some pear, canned pear. It was really horrible, and many times I came very close to dying, and I would often end up over at um, Manabal Hospital
1: it sounds horrific, Josephine, and yeah, really you no. Know, and to yeah. think that these were all foods that you were absolutely fine with prior to this incident, right? So you'd never yes. had a problem. And I believe no. when we had our first chat, you told me that the symptoms developed within twenty-four hours of the encounter with this man, yes, with the professor. Yes. So that yes, is fascinating. that's right. Now, I know that yeah. you suffered these awful symptoms for three years, but there, was, there were some markers, some turning points in between this journey. And one of them that you told me about was about a year after this happened. So we're now in January of 97. You discovered Neil Donald Walsh's book. And that, that's yeah. right. Yeah. But tell us about yeah. what happened when you found um, Conversations with God. What effect this had on, on you as you went through this? I knew by 1997
0: that I was in danger of leaving this planet. I knew that there was no solutions. Um, in those days, there was no such thing as probiotics. Uh, there was only one probiotic that you could get in Australia, and it was called Natrix, and uh, it wasn't working. And people did not have... I mean, we still don't have a very good understanding of this sort of disorder, but we, ha- we do know some a little bit more, a lot more, actually, than we did back then. But in those days, there was very little. And I knew that my only hope was to really, you know, strengthen my relationship with with the spirit world and with God. And I remember going into a bookstore. And I don't know why I was going into the bookstore. I just, something said go into the bookstore. And I was just looking at the bookshelves and there was a section there on religion and on esoteric sciences and I saw this book written by Neil Donald Wash, Conversations with God, and it was his first book. And I remember opening up the book and reading the first page and I remember thinking, oh, this is nonsense. <laughs> I remember You're a scientist. Thinking, yeah, I'm a scientist. That's right. This is, this is total nonsense. Mind you, I had been brought up in a Catholic family and I yeah. did have um, what I thought at the time was a strong faith. But by this stage, I was really panicking in my faith because all my prayers, you know, nothing was happening. And and this book just to me was like, oh, here's another book, you know, about uh, faith. And, uh, you know, I just, it didn't, I didn't feel like it related to me. So I put it down and I walked out. And by the time I got home, I just could not get that book out of my head. And this is a book that I had completely dismissed and thought was utter rubbish. It stayed with me for I can't remember now whether it was three days or a week I just could not get this thing out of my head this book out of my head and I found myself driving back to the uh the center there and and going to this bookshop and walking in and thinking oh my god I hope this book is there because I can't get it out of my mind and I think I'm gonna go crazy (laughs) if that book is not there so I went straight to it and there it was waiting for me It had not moved, it hadn't budged. So I remember leaving the shopping centre, going back home and I read that book, 48 hours. And I cried and it was such a powerful, powerful message, the whole book. It was obviously written for everybody, but it also had answered a lot of the questions that I'd often asked myself, even as a child, about you know, the Catholic Church and about its um, discrepancies you know, and even my own doubts. It was a very powerful message um, at a moment in my life when I was very, very down. I remember I, I waited in anticipation for the next book, which took another two years to, to be published.
1: And I remember you saying also that as you began to read Walsh's work, another an idea began to dawn on you and it had to do with the importance of the need to forgive and what connection this had with your healing. Could That's you right. share a little That's bit right. about that, please?
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, this was at a, at a time when I hadn't read many books on self-healing. There weren't that many at the time either. And, I mean, coming from a perspective of where I am now in my life, where every second book that you pick up is all about, you know, forgiveness and healing. At the time, Neil, presumably channelling um, God, was, was talking about the need to understand that everybody has God within them and that people are a reflection of your own inner demons, so to speak in the way that they, they behave towards you. And I realised very early on that I needed to forgive my supervisor. I understood that because I developed the food intolerances so quickly and after that terrible event with him, and in fact now I remember um, exactly what happened that afternoon, that, that night when I got home, I had a piece of chocolate and that became the very first thing that I became intolerant to. And I'll never forget it. It was a piece of uh, cachet uh, dark chocolate. So I knew it had everything to do with him. I hadn't heard of post-traumatic disorder in those days either. But I know now that that's what had happened. It was a uh, post-traumatic disorder that I was suffering from. Stress disorder, yeah. And I just knew I had to forgive him. And so I started on the process of getting through my anger at first massaging my thoughts to a point where I could get through my anger and reach a point where I could actually come to a point of understanding why he might have behaved in the way he had, trying to see it from his perspective, that he might have felt humiliated, and then seeing from the perspective of a 60-year-old who was possibly felt humiliated by the fact that he didn't get as many questions as I did, retaliating in the manner that he did, because of his vested interest in his own, in a, you know, probably a hard-won name for himself, whatever, I was finally able to actually forgive him. And also his co-worker, who was a female, and whom I had a lot of um, trouble forgiving because she was female and had suffered a similar fate uh, in the sense that she had been reprimanded badly, but she was obviously of a stronger emotional setup than I was she'd survived it. So I had to forgive both. but um, my supervisor was the, the principal um, issue in my in my heart at the time. and um, I'm really proud to say I was able to to forgive him and it was huge. and it was done on my own. There weren't you know there were no counselors at the time that I could go to. By this stage, I couldn't pursue the PhD. The scholarship ended with that, uh, and I we just didn't have any money, you know, because we were paying this huge mortgage, and lots of times we'd go over to mum's for dinner, you know, and and of course I couldn't eat anything either, so I'd bring my own very very small portions of whatever it was that I could eat at the time. So it was a very bleak period, but I was able to forgive him, and so then in 1998, April of 1998. Um, I was occasionally still having these borderline anaphylactic reactions and I remember one particular day I had just eaten whatever food that I had been normally eating and I was down to about 44, 45 kilos and I had another anaphylactic reaction and I remember I thought, I can't breathe. I can't breathe and I do not want to go to the hospital again. I had had enough at this stage. Now, by this stage, I, I had a very strong faith, but I really did believe that my physical being was um, deteriorating so significantly. I had no more strength to tolerate the um, allergic reactions. My heart was racing. I have tachycardia which was horrific, and the breathing, the the whole difficulty with the breathing. And I remember saying to myself, okay, enough. I took this great big leap of faith where I said, okay, I'm ready to die. And I remember calling on the Holy Spirit at that point saying, I'm not going to the hospital. I'm not going to take anything to prevent this from continuing. I'm in the throes of it. I'm ready to let go. And all I could think of at the time was hoping that my mum and dad and my sister would forgive me for leaving. I remember that was my final thought. I lay down on the bed um, struggling to breathe and just waiting for my soul to leave my body and trying to stay in the presence of the Holy Spirit that I had. Talking to to hurry up and take me out of my body, um, and at the same time, praying that my parents and my sister would forgive me for leaving. And that's when an amazing situation happened. That's when I had my new death experience. I remember that suddenly the bedroom that I was in uh, disappeared, and I was in the presence of a being. A, a magnificent angel. I remember that I wasn't struggling anymore with my breath. I wasn't even breathing, actually, when I think about it. The whole room was just... I wasn't even in my room anymore. There was just magnificent light emanating from this beautiful, beautiful angel. And I have to say the angel looked exactly like one of Alessandro Botticelli's you know angels that he depict and even now I often wonder whether he'd had a near-death experience I know that a lot of the angel, a lot of the masters master painters during the renaissance would depict them in this way but that's what I saw and the other thing that was amazing was that I recognized her now, I had not see, I'd never seen an angel, <laughs> apart from what you see in books and things like that. And I, well, I, I had had a Catholic upbringing, but I actually recognised her. And I know a lot of people refer to angels as males. And, you know, when you look at their faces, they, don't, they, they look androgynous. They don't look male and they don't look female. But I re to me she was a she because she had flowing blonde hair and I could see the wings behind her and I could not see her feet and but I recognized her and I remember trying to speak and not being able to and suddenly I found myself communicating to her telepathically and I heard this innocent childlike my voice in my head sounded quite innocent and childlike. <laughs> and I heard myself say, I know you. <laughs> it was this, this, this utter sense of joy. I, and, and that's why I think I sounded so innocent because it was like, oh, my God, I know you. And my voice was, was just really high with excitement. And it was in my head. I was telepathically saying this to her and she smiled, the most incredible smile, and it was a smile of recognition as if to say, of course you know me. And I remember thinking at lightning speed, how can I know her? I've never met her in my life. And at the same time thinking, yeah, but I've, I know you. I've worked with you. I know you. Anyway... At that point, she showed me a scene. She opened her arms, and as she opened her arms, this scene appeared in the air just beneath her feet, and um, and this was very unusual. And the scene was what appeared to be a World War II fighter pilots in their planes firing at each other. You know, with that da-da-da-da-da-da-da sound. And the odd thing was was that. They were definitely World War II aircraft, but there was also biplanes, biplanes of the twin-winged twin, twin um, end-of-World War I type aircraft. I remember thinking at the time, that doesn't make sense, but that's what I was shown. Mm-hmm. I now understand that that event did actually occur during the Second World War. It was... I'll get to that in a minute. Well, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll continue with what I saw.
1: Continue, and we'll come back to how you found out about that. That's great validation.
0: That's right. But I remember at the time thinking, well, you know, and I, I'm not a history buff, but I do know enough enough history to know that that wasn't right. And then she actually showed me as the airplanes were being hit, and you know, some of the planes, their wings were falling off. That as the plane was was heading to the ground at speed that the souls of the pilots were lifting out of their bodies even before they'd hit the ground. So they, as the, the, the fuselage would come close to the ground, they were already being lifted out. And she was collecting them in the sense that this, I could see the shadow, shadow uh, of, of these, you know, what looked like humans being lifted up And they were heading straight up to her. And she was sort of collecting them with her arms and ushering them into the right side of this whole scene where there was a very strong light. And I thought, at that moment, my God, she's the angel of death. And I was, of course, thinking this telepathically. And she immediately replied to me telepathically and said, Yes, I'm also the angel of birth.
1: Now, there was an instant,
0: Mm -hmm. yeah, birth, and there was an instant telepathic exchange where I suddenly knew at that point several things. One, that, you know, she was also, she's not only the angel of death that comes to collect collect souls, a little bit like the so-called Grim Reaper, but, boy, she's so beautiful but also that she's present at birth, you know, when a child is about to be born. It's a
1: fascinating
0: she, idea. Yeah, and she, uh, she um, coordinates and is in charge of that whole process. The other thing that I also remembered thinking, and it was, you know, this was, I mean, where I was at the time, I, my thoughts were instantaneous and extremely rapid. I remember also thinking I now understand why babies and children die so easily you know it's the sense of of in, incredible attraction due to the love that she emanates the love is so strong there's nothing like it that comes close you were um, feeling that love,
1: yeah. Josephine? In your oh,
0: absolutely. Yeah. It was totally engulfing me and you just wanted to, it was intoxicating is the word that I want to use. It was so intoxicating. You just couldn't get enough of it and you wanted to be with her. You wanted to be in her presence and you wanted to go with her. I didn't experience envy but I experienced a little bit of panic when I noticed that she was beginning to move away after she showed me that scene. I could fully appreciate and understand why the souls of those pilots were um, willingly going towards her.
1: I remember um, you described them as quivering energy balls, like what you could yeah. see. I remember that and it's, I've, yeah. I've noted it yeah. down because it really stuck with me. That you, It's like you saw their souls rising out of their yes. bodies
0: yeah and they were quivering it was like when you see uh if you're driving on a on a hot sunny summer's day and you can see the road quivering it's that i can't think of the name of that of what that's like called, a shimmer
1: a shimmering it's quality. like a shimmer
0: yeah and that is exactly what i could see It was this shimmering effect heading up to to her and into the light but she was very very bright And I could almost say that the love emanating from her was equivalent to the degree of light that was emanating from her as well. And Mm -hmm. it was just so beautiful. You just wanted to be with her. You wanted to go with her wherever she was going. And to my surprise at the time, she started to move away. And I I panicked because I thought... I felt this terrible sense of of loss of love as she was moving away. It was like, you can't, you can't show, you can't give me this love and now
1: go. It's like, mm-hmm. no, I'm and not, just, you just know. Before she went away, did, mm-hmm. is that when your perspective shifted and you were, you saw yourself in your parents' backyard or was that after? That's that- right.
0: It was just, um, Okay so she was moving away okay and i remember as she was going i said to her okay i remember she was she wasn't stopping she was still going and i knew that i only had precious moments with her left and i remember saying to her okay if you must go you're obviously going back to god now i had never used these particular words before but i said My body is falling apart. I cannot serve God in this body. Please ask God to heal me. And I am in shock even now when I say it because whereas now I always talk, you know, in my prayers, uh, my whole raison d'etre is to serve God. I had never used those words in my life back then. But I used it in that moment. So there was almost a... Uh, It was a surprise to me to be even saying that, but that's what I was saying. I cannot serve God. So there was an understanding that that was what my role was to be, to serve God. Now, at that moment, I found myself instantly, instantly, it was almost, you know, between heartbeats. It was just so fast. Once again, I'm not aware of the fact that I'm breathing. I'm not breathing, but I'm perfectly, feeling perfectly well all the way through this. I'm in my parents' backyard, and the scene of the aircraft's still happening. I'm shown another plane, and it's definitely World War II, towards the end of World War II. It's the jet aircraft. It gets hit by aircraft fire, and I start to see the wings fall off. And this time I find myself rooted to the ground, and I could see that this plane was falling and heading straight to me, heading straight for me. And as I could see it heading straight for me, the fuselage was somehow getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I knew I needed to run, but I couldn't. This thing kept coming and I braced myself for its impact. But by this stage, it was really, really small. It was the size of a thermos flask. And I remember thinking, this is ridiculous. Whatever it is that I'm seeing is just not possible. And it hits me and it hits me just below the knees. And I remember as it hits me, it then falls to the ground and breaks open and the impact is so intense and the pain is so great in my legs that I actually fall to my knees. And as this thing, uh, as the fuselage thermos flask falls, and opens, there is what, there's the dog tags of the pilot, because he was a military pilot, obviously, and also a film strip. Now, at that time, my PhD was involved in um, recombinant DNA techniques. This is the days when, you know, we were, I was removing DNA out of research cells, so I'll put it that way, Um, I was doing some research in marsupials. We were trying to work out how it was that genes got passed on through the female line in marsupials so that we could understand better how we inherit genes in humans. Um, I mean, we already understood that back then as well, but it was a little bit more complicated. We were looking at specific ways genes are actually turned on and how the maternal genes in marsupials are are switched on, etc. So, I remember um, I used to fish DNA out of cells. That was my job and that was part of my PhD, one of the processes involved in my PhD. When I saw the film strip, I immediately recognised that as this is not just the DNA of this pilot, but it's the life of this pilot. It was his whole life. In a film strip. And I remember picking up the dog tags and the film strip and saying to myself, oh my God, some mother is going to cry. And I knew that I had to return the dog tags to the authorities um, so that they could identify the pilot and um, let the family know. But my biggest grief, uh, and it was really intense, was for this pilot's mother. And I didn't quite understand what any of that meant at the time, although it was revealed later. Now, I remember at that moment the scene disappeared instantly and I was back on my bed. I hadn't shut my eyes throughout this whole thing. As the scene disappeared, my eyes were still open. I remember being... You know, fully aware. The levels of alertness and awareness were profound. To this day, even when I wake up in the morning, I'm not that awake or alert. I was fully, fully, fully aware and in the moment throughout the whole thing. And I was fully aware I was in my bedroom and I had not shut my eyes. My eyes were awake, uh, were, were wide open, both from that scene to the bedroom.
1: How much time do you think had elapsed in the bedroom?
0: I don't know because I didn't have the presence of mind to actually look at my watch. I remember that I did um, lie down on the bed at 10 o'clock that night. I know it was around 10. I just know that I remember springing out of bed. I remember knowing that something incredible had happened. I had a sensation that... There was a change in my health, but I wasn't sure what it was. What had actually happened was that I had healed completely, instantly. It wasn't until the next day that the whole realisation came, came to me because uh, I remember I, I ran up the stairs and I went and told my husband about it. It was late and I remember we then went back to bed and even though I was still very excited, I slept. But then I remember when I woke up that morning, I was desperate, absolutely desperate for some apricot jam. Now, apricot jam would have killed me. It would have, you know, they would have had to have used a an pen uh, to resuscitate me had I had even a teaspoon of apricot jam. Because once again, apricots, not only are they high in salicylate, but they're also high in amines, high in glutamine as well, which is a relative of minus sodium glutamate, MSG, you know. right? So uh, uh, it would have killed me. And I remember thinking, I'm desperate for apricot jam. And I went to the hospital and the doctor there, who knew me by this stage, could see me shaking for some apricot jam. I was a wreck. And he said, okay, okay. And he asked the nurse to go get some apricot jam from the um, the hospital kitchen. And he said, don't worry, you can have some here and we'll we'll be ready to help you, you know. With, with cortisone and everything that you need in case you have a, an anaphylactic reaction. And uh, I remember I had my first teaspoon of apricot jam. It was the sweetest, most delightful thing. Did you tell the doctor
1: any... about the experience? Oh, yes.
0: Yes, I did. He was amazing. He was a beautiful doctor. He was uh, from from Syria. And, um, and he'd emigrated um, as a child here to Australia. But he had very strong faith. And I remember he looked into my eyes and he said to me and I hadn't put two and two together at all I hadn't put any of this together but he said to me I think you might be pregnant and I said to him no not possible I'd had a period we hadn't made love well we had made love but making love was really sporadic I was so so sick at the time and I remember that that We'd made love about five or six weeks earlier, just that once in six weeks. My poor husband, uh, but uh, but I was so fragile and sick,
1: cool. and
0: um, and then you'd had a period, I a heavy period, a mm. very heavy period, and also in those days because I was so thin, there were some months where I didn't get a period at all. So, but I'd had a heavy, heavy period, and um, and there hadn't been any lovemaking after that. So, you know, I just thought, no, that's absolutely insane. So anyway, I remember I had my teaspoon of apricot jam. I had no reaction. I was perfectly fine. The doctor looked into my eyes and he said, I want to do a pregnancy test because he said, I believe you're pregnant. And he understood it. I I don't know how, but he did. When I told him how I picked up the dog tags, that's, he told me at the time, that that's what made him think that I was pregnant. Well, the the results of the test were that they were positive. And then at the 12 week ultrasound, well actually my doctor at the time then said he got worried about the fact that so much time had elapsed since my period and we hadn't made love, but I was pregnant. So he said to me, okay, it was, I think uh, by this stage, seven weeks or eight weeks. And he said, I strongly recommend you go have an ultrasound. So I went and had the ultrasound and they couldn't even pick up a zygote. They couldn't pick up anything. They said to me, oh, this pregnancy is probably not, is a non-viable one, but come back at 12 weeks. And I didn't feel pregnant at all. But by this stage, um, I had begun to put on weight because I could actually start to eat. I was actually, you know, I could eat. And I was very much in that euphoria of, you know, I've had a miracle. I I actually had a miracle. I remember um, then going back for the 12-week ultrasound and, and yes, I had a, you know, uh, a beautiful little fetus that um, had a heartbeat. But even more <laughs> amazing was that <laughs> as the pregnancy went on, I went from strength to strength, except that uh, little Rich was born two weeks preemie and, and it was a difficult birth, but this little boy began to speak very early and he, I remember he he walked early and he spoke early and by, by 13, 14 months, he was beginning to pick up both Italian and English because I am Italian descent, born in Australia, but uh, Italian parents. By 14, 15 months, he was beginning to do things that really surprised us. I remember he 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 would have been about thirteen months when we took him to a museum over in um, in Brisbane. We walked into this museum and there was a um, steam engine, and it was a, an actual steam engine, but not but non working, of course. And he was in his uh, little stroller pram thing and he pointed to it and he started saying aqua 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 is water and i remember thinking nah this can't be possible he can't he can't understand that that's a steam engine you know that uses water but i thought he probably thinks everything is water but no he was very very specific and my husband ended up videotaping this and then at 18 months we went to port stevens and there's a military aviation museum there and this is when the shock really hit me by this stage you know i remember when we walked into the museum i wasn't thinking about my near-death experience i wasn't thinking anything other than you know having a wonderful time and, and taking my little boy to see this museum and to our utter shock and surprise this little 18 month old Who had never, you know, who didn't know anything about first or second world war, didn't know anything about airplanes, starts identifying the aircraft. He could identify a Luftwaffe. He could identify a Spitfire, and he could identify the biplane, the Red Baron. Now he was only eighteen months. I mean, this this little boy hadn't even watched cartoons at this point. You know, as as a teacher, I was reading to him a lot and things like that, but this was, you know, this was extraordinary and the wonderful thing is that we have the proof of it because my husband videotaped the whole lot of it and that's, you know, uh, that's when it really hit me like a ton of bricks and I thought to myself, oh, my God, these are the planes that I saw in my near-death experience and my little boy is identifying them.
1: So was he pointing to them and spontaneously yes. saying the name? of Yes, yes. He was saying, I remember he couldn't say l- l- Luftwaffe very well, so he was going, Luftwaffe, wolfwaffe,
0: <laughs> a Wolfwaffer. And I remember, you know, my husband freaking out as well because it's like this child, this little 18-month-old, you know, how can he know these things? How can he un- know this to be able to identify them? Now, I remember soon after, My beautiful little pussycat um, got seriously ill. Um, She was my first first pet and um, she was 16 years old and she had um, mouth cancer and she had just been diagnosed and I had never had a, a death experience in my life. You know, up until this stage, I had been blessed with every member of my family being alive and my grandparents had already died before I was born, so I hadn't even suffered that. So... I remember when they told me that my 16 year old cat was dying, it was like my baby was dying and I couldn't cope with it. And I remember going to see a clairvoyant, which by this stage was a normal thing for me because I had continued to read Neil Donald Walsh with every book that he published. And by that stage, he had published a second book and possibly the third. So the whole idea of, of speaking to a clairvoyant who could actually um, contact the other side for me was quite natural for me. And, uh, and I knew that I needed help because I couldn't, I couldn't stand the pain of losing my, my beautiful lily bath. So I went to see this beautiful clairvoyant and her name was Lucia. And quite apart from the fact that she shocked me by telling me that I was the one who was going to put my cat down, Here I am thinking, no, 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 I'm going to just let her die naturally. I can't dare take her life. Uh, And she was right. I did end up putting her down because I eventually couldn't stand seeing her suffering so badly. She um, also told me at the time that my beautiful little boy had been a pilot during the Second World War. She just came out with it. She just came out with it. And I remember my stomach turned upside down because I wasn't there to talk about my son. I hadn't even mentioned that I had a son. I was there to talk about my cat. I was there to get inspiration about how to save my cat's life. (laughs) You know, suddenly she said, you have a little boy and he was a fighter pilot during the Second World War. She told me that he died disillusioned because he had discovered that the squadron leader was a spy for the other side or had somehow done something to betray them he had come to understand just before he died that the war was not what it seemed he had gone into the war fully believing that he was doing something really important for his countrymen and he, He'd come to this realisation that it was not what it seemed, that there were other powers manipulating the whole situation. And so he went to his death disillusioned. And then I was told that he had refused to come back many times and I'd since learnt by then that we do get a choice. You have to come back to continue to evolve, but, you know, if you don't want to, you can hang around on the other side for as long as you need to and as long as you want to until you decide to come. And then I was told that, um, she told me that he chose to come because he was told that I would be his mother. And what I understood from that was that I had always been, from a very young age, I remember my mother reading me books and showing me books and I remember one day she showed me a World Atlas, I was all of three. And she was showing me this world atlas because she was trying to show me because I used to I spoke Italian and Italian was my first language even though I was born here in Australia because Mum and Dad spoke spoke broken English you know although their English uh, improved dramatically um, over time and Dad eventually was doing translations for people and for the banks and for the law courts and whatever but uh, in, in those early days Mum's English was not that good. And she was trying to show me Italy <laughs> on the map and sh- trying to show me Australia. And I remember this atlas had pictures of people from different countries. So there was a Chinaman from China and, um, and there was, um, you know, an Arab from, from Saudi Arabia or whatever. Sicily had been invaded by the Arabs during the, um, the Islamic Empire and there had been huge frictions uh, between the small Italian uh, villages and the small Arabic villages. And to this day, although it doesn't happen anymore, the it's in Sicilian folklore. And so, you know, Mum was telling me about wars and I was thinking, well, nobody wins in wars. I remember this.
1: You knew and that at age three. Nobody wins in I knew that.
0: Yeah. Nobody wins in wars. And I could always see it from the mother's perspective. Anyway. The big shock of it all was that she then said to me, your son has come back to you. And I realised that this child of mine had died during the Second World War, but that this was a child of mine. So when I felt the intense pain of picking up the dog tags and telling the mother that the mother was going to be told this information that his son had died and that she would cry I
1: was actually experiencing my own grief. So you were his mother in that life? I was his mother in that lifetime, yeah. So was that in Britain? Was he a British fighter pilot?
0: It was British. It was a British
1: fighter pilot. Now,
0: the thing is that the revelation of the point in time where you had both a Second World War oh, yes engine engine aircraft with with jets, which is toward and and biplanes, mm. was only revealed to me last year. We were watching a um, documentary on the shelling of the Bismarck. It was it, it happened just outside of the English Channel. The whole episode talked about um, how the Bismarck was sunk, and it was sunk. There were fighter jets, but they were not. They were flying up to the Bismarck. There were obviously Spitfires up, uh, flying up to the Bismarck to sink it, but they couldn't reach it in time or there was too much distance or there were real issues at the time. And the Admiral, the British Admiral, was aware that there were World War One biplanes in Portugal who could be launched to reach the Bismarck what? in time before the German Luftwaffe could could protect it, because it had been already hit. The Bismarck had already been hit. It was heading towards France. And uh, by this stage, Germany had already invaded France. So it was heading, limping towards France so that it would be able to be protected by the Luftwaffe that would fly, fly over France towards her to protect her. And the British Admiral thought, um, we've got to stop her from reaching French waters. And um, there wasn't enough time to do so by boats, by by the other, you know, ships that they had out there. And so he launched these World War I aircraft from Portugal and they flew across before the Bismarck entered. So I remember thinking at the time you had both the jet aircraft and the biplanes up there at that time. And I thought, Wow. That's amazing. I never thought that that could be possible, but that's that's what I saw in my vision, and there it was. So that's actual... extraordinary.
1: You you watching mm. the documentary last year, you had confirmation mm. that the scene that you'd that had unfolded mm. in your NDE had actually taken place. So do you believe yeah. that is the the battle or the operation in which your son in that life lost his life?
0: I have not had any confirmation from a clairvoyant, but I remember when I watched it. There was that intense um, feeling inside of me, that no doubt feeling inside of me, that sort of intuitive hit when you know that it's correct. I mean, in the 21, almost 22 years since my near death experience, I've launched into service, spiritual service, service to mankind. And one of the gifts that I developed as a result of the near death experience was to be able to do tarot. And with the tarot, I am also now a nascent. What I mean by that is that I get visions when people come and, you know, if they need a if they, I, I offer tarot and um, as part of a healing service, I, I do tarot to help people come to an understanding of what their soul's desire is in life. Also looking at the problems that they've got and why they have those problems and how that relates to their soul's desires so I occasionally get these visions when that happens and with it there's a no doubt sort of feeling or experience and when I was watching that documentary I knew that this was a serendipitous event that I was watching it on purpose as confirmation but plus many things happen in my life that are very serendipitous that sort of Answers a lot of questions that I have uh, that can span, for instance, twenty years because something else happened in April of last year that also solved the puzzle of why I met, attracted my the supervisor that I got for my PhD into my life. Yes, Uh, I I want to hear about
1: that, Josephine. I do. (laughs) I want you to tell that story because it is utterly amazing just when you think it couldn't get any better this story but I just want to just unpack a couple of things just before we get there one is that I don't know if our audience would have picked up one of the most fascinating aspects of your experience when you were transported you know in the spirit to your parents backyard and you saw this this the fuselage coming towards you in in the size of a thermos flask and then the mm. the role of film that emerged mm. that you mm. linked back to your dna you under, your dna mm. research sorry mm. this mm. was also now tell me if i'm wrong but the the film strip that emerged had scenes of the pilot's life on it right is that right that's correct that's correct and yeah. in its physicality it's that swirling motion It also resembled the DNA itself. Is that correct? That's correct. I find that amazing. absolutely correct. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I mean, I don't find that so amazing now. We're beginning to understand, physics is beginning to understand that the way the DNA works, there's many physicists, uh, quantum physicists especially, are beginning to develop very deep understandings of how the DNA works. And that in actual fact, our memories are carried in mm. DNA. There's things called ancestral memories. Mm. There's a lot of energy in DNA, not so much in the field of biology, but definitely in the field of physics. They're beginning to unravel how information is stored in the DNA. And it's not It's not just in the chemical bonds. There's actual quantum interactions that are going on. And so... I, from my perspective, it was it, it was an instantaneous leap that I made at that moment in time. I knew that I was holding the life of this being and I was, and it was given to me as a film strip, but I was also, I was carrying the life of that person that had been lived and the actual life, which is the DNA, which gives, in which the, the life force is stored, you know, without the DNA, you, you do not have the information to produce a being, basically. And, and so you're, you're carrying the life force and the life, the life that was lived. And that information was instant in my mind. I made that correlation instantly. I knew I was holding that person's life in my hand and that I was going to have to deliver this to that mother with that bad news that is gone.
1: But at the same so, time, you yeah. would you would actually deliver a son, and you would life. So the angel of death so, and yeah. life that you saw a life. That's
0: right. That that's right. Heard. I had been given that child's life back. So very I beautiful. was delivering, but I was also receiving. Yes, very
1: profound. It's, it's very, very profound, profound and poetic. It's just beautiful. Mm. Wow! Yeah. And another aspect yeah. of your experience that is lovely is that. As that angel, that's that very beautiful angel that you saw in your room was leaving you and you were just filled mm. with this profound grief, this kind of spontaneous prayer or just plea, mm. pleading came out of you about mm. not being able to serve in the body that you're in and, you know, you, you yes. asked her to, to pass on your mm. request for healing. And I remember mm. you telling me when we first spoke that she smiled in response. And you knew knew that she would do it, that she would pass on that message and that you would be healed. Is that right, Jo? That's absolutely correct. Um, Her smile was absolutely beaming. It was a
0: smile of complete recognition. I knew that I could instantly trust her. It was, I mean, I was experiencing, a lot of people might not understand this, but you do experience grief when that intense love goes and so I was in a moment of grief at that point of disbelief and grief when she smiled as as the words were coming out of my mind telepathically to her I can't I can't serve in this body please ask God to heal me when she smiled in that instant there was peace the grief had changed to peace and it was it was an instant recognition and trust there was no thought of oh god i hope that she'll talk to god it was knowing it was a complete knowing and i went into instant peace and and then you know um of course when i um you know still with my eyes open find myself on the bed the sense of euphoria (laughs) was incredible
1: and you were spontaneously healed of this you know quite Mm. horrific rare Mm. by the sounds of a physical condition that you'd suffered for the better part of three years yes
0: it's it's interesting because it was instantaneous i did come back to a totally healed body and i even as the days went by because i had been so sick for three years and i had been told by doctors that i would be like that for the rest of my life which is a death sentence, and it's, it, 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 you know, no doctor should ever say that to anybody. I know now that, that you know, words have great power, and, mm-hmm. and no one has the right to say that to anybody. Even if you're suffering from cancer or something like that, uh, you never say that to anybody because it, it affects your belief system, and then you create what you believe. And I remember being afraid to try foods. And, of course, when I'd summon the courage and try it like I did with the apricot jam, because I at that point I remember with the apricot jam I was just elated, but I was also afraid. I wanted my doctor to be with me now for the, you know, for for the next couple of months, always standing beside me every time I'd try something, in case, in case. Um, And I know that sounds crazy. It almost sounds like a doubting Thomas, but I have been so sick. And... I didn't know whether I had healed completely. I didn't know whether, you know, I would eventually be healed completely, and that I was just going through a process of healing. I didn't know where I was at.
1: And you were pregnant um, as well. Surprise pregnancy. <laughs> yeah,
0: and I was pregnant as well. But in actual fact, I was completely, completely healed. Yeah, beautiful. It is it amazing. amazing.
1: Another interesting point is what the clairvoyant said to you when she, you know, she told you about your son's past life, which, of course, aligned perfectly with your experience and with what he had, re- your son himself had revealed as an 18 month yeah. old. But she yeah. also said that she, she told an interesting backstory about his disillusion with yes. the powers that be. And it just struck me yes. that that in a way mirrored your own experience with your disillusion with yes you know and your hurt that you'd experienced with your supervisor
0: yeah that's very true subsequently to that whole experience as i said having an occasional clairvoyant session became part of my life i had realized that my whole life i had always been very respectful towards authority but i would had another clever one tell me that in actual fact there had been a lot of abuse by people in authority in my lifetime and my supervisor was, you know, the, the culminating effect of that. Now, can I honestly say, though, that it was a very important experience spiritually because the thing that I learnt the most from that whole experience was, that great Shakespearean quote, to thine own self be true. Because leading up to that experience with my supervisor, I had had lots of little warnings because I had... The whole idea of doing a PhD is that you become an autonomous individual with your own ideas in your specialist field of practice and that you can go on and do research. And... The PhD is supposed to coach you into being confident in your own abilities to do your own research and go on and then have other research students under you. And so I was already very confident and I had ideas which I had shared with my supervisor and my supervisor had agreed with them. And so in agreeing with them and assisting me to pursue them, my confidence had, had been increased, which is what is supposed to happen. But when he then abused me verbally and and then told me that everything that I had done to at that point, which I knew at this stage could not be true, but he was telling me that everything I had done was 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 wrong, was bad, and that I was incapable. You know, that was an abuse because it was almost like, well you built me up to trust my own instincts and now you're telling me my own instincts in research are rubbish. And where does that lead me? You know, after all these years of study, uh, if I can't go on and be a researcher and be an academic, well, where does that lead me? You
1: mm-hmm. know? So it was a complete uh, crumbling of everything that you'd, you'd worked for, totally, believed, totally. Yeah.
0: yeah. And he was a person in authority that I looked up to. So um, the thing is, though, that I had had all these little niggling doubts in my mind that not so much that my ideas weren't worthy of exploration but doubts about whether he wanted me to explore them because there was the potential that it would encroach on some of his work and actually end up being research that would yield more information than the field, the area that he was in.
1: I see what you saying. I mean,
0: it's quite political. It was yeah. quite political, and I didn't want to you know, step on the on my supervisor's shoes, so to speak, uh, because I also had a vested interest in getting my my PhD. Once I had my PhD, I could then go on and do what I wanted to do. But I also had to work within his his field and within his ego, so to speak. So it was it was difficult. But at that point, I. I had such a good relationship with him in terms of a work relationship. You know, they, a supervisor is someone you need to be able to trust. And he had completely destroyed that trust. Yeah. But he'd also destroyed trust in myself. Mm. And this was the, the worst part of it. And I learned an invaluable lesson uh, that I should always be true to myself. This is why now I spend, you know, my life um, in service. And people that come to me who are distressed, my main aim is to find out why they're distressed. Because generally, if they are emotionally distressed or physically distressed, it's because they've denied a truth within themselves.
1: Wow, that's really uh, powerful. Say that again, please, Joe. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, and this and this tends to happen to people post forty um, mm. onwards. Uh, and the reason why I want to say that is because that's when it that's when the soul the soul starts to really work through the, the, the physical body by the age of 50. And it says in Conversations with God by Neil Donald Worship, I think in Book 3 or 4, it says you're not really an adult. God, God does not consider you an adult until you're 50 because that's when you've had life experience. And this is when your soul really starts to want to uh, work with you, express itself through you, generally for the benefit of humanity. And it could be in the arts, it could be in whatever field that you specialise in. People post-40 is when they start to either have major health issues in their lives or major emotional issues in their lives. Everyone before 40 can still have them as well. Um, But generally I find post-40, when they're sitting down in front of me and they're telling me their, their, their trauma, physical or emotional, it's always because they have not followed their inner truth. Their inner truth is their soul's expression. But a lot of times people don't know that. Sometimes their inner truth is buried, buried under layers of all sorts of life experiences that they've attracted to themselves. Sometimes they feel that they have to be responsible for everyone so they're not listening to their own inner self. There's all sorts of issues and reasons why we don't listen to our inner truth. But the inner truth... Uh, if it's not heard will eventually lead to some sort of trauma, be it mental, emotional, or physical. Some sort of breakdown. that's yeah.
1: yeah. Like
0: Yeah, it's a breakdown because if the soul can't express itself, if it can't be given the avenue through the personality to express what it's come here to experience, okay, then it will notify the person, the personality, by causing a little itch, so to speak, a tickle. And that could be an emotional feeling. You know, some people will call that depression. That could be mental anguish, or it could be a physical illness. And it's designed to grab your attention. Often, if you're not Terribly spiritually inclined, the first thing you'll do is you'll go to a doctor to get help. And sometimes that will sort itself out. And if it doesn't, uh, if it does, it might come, you know, you'll then get something else and then you'll get something else. Or it might get worse. But invariably, people come to me when everything else has failed. And, uh, or they're just finding that whatever avenues they're looking for to help solve their problems is not working for them. And often, you know, when they tell me their worries and their problems, I get overwhelmed as well. And I sometimes even go into fear and think, oh, my God, how can I help this person? And And the only bit of information that reassures me is that I know in my prayers I always ask God, please don't send me any more than I can actually handle and you know better than I do what I can handle. And so, if they walk into my little office, I know, and they come with their problems. I know that I must be able to handle it; otherwise, they wouldn't have walked in in the first place. And the wonderful thing is that a lot of my clients then say things like, "Oh, I was just driving past and I saw your sign, and I just had to come in." And I don't really know why, but I had to, to come in. And then they'll sit down, and you know, I'll make them a cup of tea, and then we'll start talking. And you know, invariably, we then both come to an understanding of why they're here (laughs) and and then you know once i go with the tarot it all just falls into place despite my own fears it's just all there and and people invariably end up coming away Uh, they never leave they never leave uh, without a solution or a direction in their lives.
1: So you've gone from being a scientist, academic, all the way through to now doing this completely, what sounds like, completely different work in the healing yes, right. field. So yes. what is that sign that's hanging outside your door that people read? What does it say? <laughs> uh, it's just, it's
0: well, I mean, I, I just call it Joe's Harmony Healing. Okay. Um, and it just has a little sign that says virtual counsellor, tarot reader and healer. That's okay. all.
1: And is that does that take up all your time these days, Joe? this work of yours, serving? It did just prior to COVID. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I lost my little clinic,
0: my little room, uh, at the back of a beautiful second-hand bookshop in Hornsby uh, called The Book Play. It's, it's like Hogwarts, it really is. You walk <laughs> into the second-hand bookshop and it's really beautiful. It's The energy there is just just absolutely beautiful. And I've got this beautiful little room at the back. But... Now I, I do things through um, Skype, not so much through Zoom, but through Skype and phone calls. And, yeah, I can't wait to get back. It's still not open yet, but, yeah. But prior to COVID, yes, yes, that's right. I,
1: and so given wonderful. given all of these extraordinary experiences with your NDE, with your, your son, what do you believe about past lives or, or parallel lives? What are your thoughts around all of that?
0: Well... Well, this this actually leads into what happened um, last year in April. Right. The fact that being Catholic at the time I'm not Catholic anymore. I'm more spiritual than anything else. I don't belong to any denomination or any religion. But um, in the Catholic faith, they never talk about uh, reincarnation. And so when I was shown that scene by that beautiful angel, I was. I had to come to terms with what I had seen and and I, I, I knew that I had seen something that had occurred in the past. I understood that this was possibly associated with reincarnation. By this stage, I had read enough of Neil Donald Walsh's book to know that reincarnation does exist, but it was really driven home when my 18-month-old son, was naming those um, those planes in that museum. And at that moment, really, I mean, the whole world was open to me in terms of who we really are. Mm. And I then accepted the fact that I possibly had had many previous lifetimes. I continued to read every book that Neil Donald Bosch published and I think in book three, there's a statement there where Neil asks God how many lifetimes he's led, he's had, and God says somewhere in the vicinity of 600, you know. So I understand it now that it is part of our lives and it, it doesn't surprise me and I know that we come into this world filled with opportunities to deal with things from past lives that were not possibly dealt with to our personal satisfaction Mm. because having understood anything from the uh, Conversations with God books, we are totally in control of our own evolution and we are our own judges. There is no such thing as final judgment day. There is. It's our own judgment Mm. of ourselves. Uh, God does not judge. As part of this whole thing, uh, in April of last year, I had an amazing experience, I, um, which relates to what happened um, 22 years ago with uh, my near-death experience. I had not asked or even imagined to ask the question of why I had attracted my supervisor in my life and why I had had such an issue with authority <laughs> in terms of these traumatic events with a person that I trusted. It had never dawned on me to even ask the question. And then um, last year, my my sister is currently suffering from the same disorder that um, I suffered back then. She started to suffer this disorder as a result of the death of my father, who she was very close to. And uh, she's very, very ill at the moment. And last year she had a major crisis and ended up in hospital, and I went into so much fear that she might cross over. Not so much; but it was there was no fear about her crossing over. It was the fear of losing my, my sister's love, fear of, of not having it with me anymore. Uh, I mean, I knew she where she was going to go to, and I knew it was going to be an amazing experience for her. But it was just a selfish thing of not wanting to lose my sister's presence in my life, incarnate presence, because I. I'm in touch with my dad, <laughs> even though he's disincarnate. But I just wanted her present. Very selfish of me, but anyway. I understand. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. And as a result of of that shock of her being in hospital, I had a mild, I had a relapse of mm-hmm. these food intolerances. So now not only was my, is my sister suffering from them, but at the time I had a mild relapse. I decided to go and see a kinesiologist um, to try and sort out, you know, why I was having asked my body, okay, I know why it's fear, but um, you know, can we rebalance my body and my emotional being so that I release this, this, this attachment of, of needing my sister physically here? She also is a clairvoyant, and so she had me lying on the bed and she was tapping away uh, as kinesiologists do on the body uh, to get information. When all of a sudden she stood right back, her arms went up like this and she stood right back. And she said, can you see it? And as she said that, I saw it. And what I saw was a scene of a very pretty 16 year old girl in And this is quite funny because she said to me, where are you? Can you see where you are? Because I said, yes, I can see myself. And she said, can you see where you are? And just like when I had the near-death experience and I couldn't speak, but I could speak telepathically, even though I was lying on the bed, I found it really difficult to speak. I could say it with my mind, but I couldn't say it out loud. But the, the kinesiologist was standing next to me and she was saying, where are you? And I remember saying London and I was going and I was saying, no, it's not London. It's England. No, no. And then I said, North of New York. I could see it. It's North of New York. And of course it's the new England region, new England, right? New England. And she said, you're right. And I said, yeah, North of New York. And, and then at that instant I was shown this vision I felt it more than I, I understood it more than I saw aspects of it, and I understood it. I was spared the horror of it, and what I was shown was the supervisor that had verbally abused me 21, 22 years ago was actually my tutor in a previous lifetime. The period was the 18. 18- 40s I could see that very clearly. I knew the time. It was 1840 in the New England area, uh, area of the states, and uh, I immediately recognized that the tutor who was teaching me at that time—I was from a middle class, uh, a well-to-do upper middle class family. I had been betrothed to a beautiful young man that I was in love with. We were two weeks away from getting married. My family had employed a tutor to educate me and he had been teaching me for two years and he had fallen in love with me and he couldn't stand the idea that I was going to marry my betrothed and he raped and murdered me. Now, I saw the whole thing but I was spared the actual physical sensation. But I recognised one of the sensations. Part of the borderline anaphylactic reaction that I would get was a choking sensation in the throat. And it would be quite horrific. And then the problems with the breathing and I would get the two together with the tachycardia. When he was choking me, I could, I immediately knew how it felt. It was the choking sensation that I would feel with the anaphylactic reactions. Now, I I died, but I didn't go across. I realised that I was actually a ghost.
1: So in and, the experience that you were witnessing, you, yes. you were seeing yourself as a ghost. Yes, I saw everything and I saw
0: myself get out of my body, stand up, and I was a ghost. And I also refused to leave. I was still a ghost right up until April of uh, uh, of, of last year. On that, bed, uh, on, the, on that bed with the kinesiologist next to me. I knew that I had been a ghost all that time, in that, uh, over there. And the kinesiologist, I remember hearing the kinesiologist's voice as I was seeing the scene in front of me. And she was saying, what are you doing now? And I'm saying to her, I can't leave, I'm a ghost. I knew I was a ghost, but I can't leave. And the kinesiologist said to me, why can't you leave? And I said to her, I could see it plainly, that I felt that I couldn't leave my betrothal because he would be in terrible grief and pain and that I needed to be with him. I needed to look after him. As I was saying that to the kinesiologist, I realised that here I was in 2019 and I immediately... Said to her, "He's gone now. It's 2019. You it can go." And I know I was, I was telling this to myself, this this 16-year-old this myself, wow. who I recognized as myself, but she was a different personality. I recognized her; she was me, but she was expressing a different part of me as another personality. But that she had echoes of me in her, I knew that. The whole, her heart was my heart. The heart that I have now is the heart that she had. I recognised her heart straight away. I recognised it was me. And I just said to her, you can leave now. And she nodded in agreement and she disappeared. I saw her disappear. She got fainter and fainter and fainter and she disappeared. And then there was just silence and peace and my kinesiologist then said to me, um, Has she gone? And I then, the scene just disappeared and I looked at her and I said, Oh my God, she's gone. I've been a ghost. So that was my first experience of not, I mean, that was a, a personal experience of a past life that I'd had, but also having to realize not only did I have the experience of being of having had a past life and knowing what that was like, but also knowing that there was another part of me coexisting at exactly the Mm. same time, living as a ghost. That was was amazing. And I also realised, you know, now who my supervisor was, that I'd come into this life, once again, he was in the role of a tutor only at the higher echelons of education Because in that lifetime, you know, he was tutoring me as a young 16-year-old. I had met my supervisor now in my mid-20s doing my PhD, so at the other end of my education. And obviously I understood that this was an important opportunity, an opportunity for him to finish educating me, an opportunity for both of us because there's, you know, it's, it's a two way process. We yeah. both benefit from this. You know, can I tell the audience that I now understand that at a, at a higher turn of the scale in terms of our spirituality, there are no victims, right? So my soul called forth that whole experience in 1840 for a particular reason. And I honestly believe that that reason was to. Find the capacity within myself to forgive. and I don't know whether I forgave him in that lifetime, but i had I suffered terribly in this lifetime, and I did find the capacity in this lifetime to forgive him. and I was when I came out of that last year, I was really happy that I had forgiven him back in nineteen ninety eight. Uh, and early, 1997, 1998, because I had forgiven him without the knowledge that I know now, without the knowledge of April uh, 2019. And I had come to that ability to forgive through my own ability of getting through all that anger about what had happened, all the trauma, all the pain, and then just coming to the realisation that this was a man who had been created by God and that therefore needed also forgiveness and, and you know, and to be released. And, and in so doing, I also forgave myself for having taken on the emotion to the degree that I did, allowing this person to assault me to that degree, because I, I could have blocked it off and said, I don't, I'm not going to take that, I'm not going to accept that. So it was shown to me that... This had happened to me in a past life and I'd come back into this lifetime and I'd also given this man another chance and the audience, I, I hope the audience doesn't judge him because God doesn't judge, but I really believe that uh, he taught me to stand on my own two feet. He taught me to to trust the little voice inside of me, to trust my inner truth and in learning that one lesson of trusting my inner truth, I also became empowered. So how can I not forgive a soul that has taught me so much? So I I not only forgive him, but I release him with peace and peace be upon him. I have told the universe, I've told Universal Consciousness God that he can go forth and continue to experience whatever his soul's desires are and that it really isn't necessary for him to come back into my life for another opportunity because he's forgiven and released.
1: Oh, wow. That is just such an astonishing story, Mm Joe. And I'm going to try to express one question that's arisen as you've been telling that postscript to this Mm -hmm. astonishing story. So in spiritual circles or, you know, various traditions, we discuss oneness and how the idea that we're all interconnected and that essentially we are all one. For instance, I study A Course in Miracles, which you're probably familiar with, which is this beautiful... I'm gem. studying that now. Oh, are you? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Well, you would know yes. that when it uses mm. the language, the one son of God, but that is actually mm. the entire collective humanity is the one son. Mm. So... Mm. When you touched on earlier about DNA and ancestral memory and in your experience of your NDE, you knew that you carried the DNA represented the life. And I'm just wondering if almost in the way of a hologram, if each each of us carries within us all of the lives and that that is the physical manifestation of the interconnectedness that we talk of in spirituality and whether that 's why forgiveness is so important because we are all one we 're releasing ourselves yes. What are your thoughts on the yeah. oneness and and just you know whether we do all perhaps like a hologram carry everybody 's lives within us, and that that 's a, a more truer perhaps interpretation of what past lives are i fully
0: I fully agree with it in the sense that more and more I believe that the soul is an individuation of the one. Mm. Um, But I uh, also have come to an understanding that the soul is not um, just one individual, that the soul is actually many individuals, they're groups of individuals. And so there's the one soul that encompasses the group of individuals. And so that one soul is expressing itself, its many facets through each individual. And then you get many of these souls all coming together. So my view is very much of the, fact of the idea that we are holograms through a projected image of an aspect of a soul, an aspect of an aspect of a soul that is, whose great desire is to express itself. And overarching the soul are all the souls which produce the one. The soul is directly connected to the one, which has all of the information. The soul has access to all of that information, but is specifically involved in projecting its many aspects to experience physicality. Why? My view is, and I've, I've picked this up from lots of readings, and and the audience might be able to identify which books. This is from because I can't at this very moment be able to tell you because I've read so much in my life and I can't tell you now what information I got from where because it's become so much part of my understanding my life. But and this is probably from conversations with God. Uh, I'm actually receiving a message right now that it's probably from um, happier than God. But it's the concept that God is everything and God has created everything. The statement created everything is a mathematical term. It says infinity. It says boundless. Mm. It's all done. It's all created and it's boundless. And so from that concept, I get the view that, well, God has already created everything. So then what? (laughs) What do you do then? He's constantly creating. You can't turn him off. But he's already created everything. So if he's already created everything, it's actually bounded. It's actually has boundaries because he's already created everything. There's nothing left to create. The boundary is nothing left to create. So therefore, what can you do next? Well, what you can do next is produce holograms of yourself. Give those holograms of yourself aspects of your characteristics. When I say you're, I'm talking about God here. Aspects of your characteristics. And then give those aspects of your characteristics, which have the the capability of creation, because God is creation, to go forth and create freely. So these aspects of the characteristics then go forth and create freely. But because everything is already created, that's not possible. But in something called the realm of the relative, it can be explored. So... In the realm of the relative, everything is created. It's bounded by the fact that everything is created, so nothing more can be created because everything's created. So God creates this realm of the relative, projects itself, little characteristics of itself, and along with those characteristics, which is all the personalities, there's also the grand ability to create. And then He says, "Go forth and experience," and and so we go forth and experience. And what we're trying to experience is who we really are because we're also having to forget who we are to recreate anew. And it's a, in the realm of the relative, it's done through co-creation. So every thought that you have, you've forgotten who you are, that's done on purpose so that you can create. And the whole aim of it is to see whether you can express who you really are. It's this whole experiment. And in so doing, while you're failing in the expressions of who you really are, you're creating more, even if it's, failure even if it's horrible stuff you're actually creating you're creating you're creating you can't stop it and then eventually we start to remember start to remember and this gives the soul great joy because then it's like oh great now we can start creating good stuff great stuff beautiful stuff Mm. we've worked it all out and now we're creating even more beautiful stuff that that is amazing but it's an act of co-creation because because everything has already been created The soul goes to the realm of the the absolute, collects it for us because we were God, we created it, brings it down into the realm of the relative and in our partial amnesia, because now we're beginning to remember, we get the grand experience of experiencing this new creation for the first time when in actual fact it's not for the first time because when we were one we created it all
1: (laughs) oh my goodness my head is swimming
0: (laughs) (laughs) so it's quite complicated (laughs) so okay so how does that work with ancestral memory it's part to me it's part of the soul group memory Mm. ancestral memory is soul group memory that's why we also incarnate in in groups right where you know you're your son in this lifetime could have been your father in your past lifetime or yeah. something like that. It's the soul group that moves forward and the whole soul group that that um, uh, takes on these roles prior to incarnating, fully being aware of what we want to experience, what we want to explore, what we want to grow within ourselves. And as we do so, coming closer and closer to having the experience of who we really are. But at the same time, growing that aspect of who we really are. This is the other thing. We, we're growing it. We're at the leading edge of creation and co-creation. I should say the leading edge of co-creation because it's uh, God creates, we co-create. So it's an incredible experiment. It's an incredible exploration and it's an incredible gift and it's not for the faint-hearted. No. So I have great awe and respect for every human being on this planet. And that includes you know Xi Jinping and Donald Trump and everybody, because it's not easy to do it. Mm-hmm. So all of us that come here, we're all incredibly courageous beings. We really are. And when you look at all these people, whether they're despots or whether they're heroes they really believe in what they're doing and they don't necessarily know <laughs> that what they're doing may, you know, is may actually be catastrophic, horrific or fantastic. That's the whole point of the experiment and the co-creation. And yes, there are people who will be able to identify that, you know, if you go down that particular path, it's really bad, but that's simply because of spiritual evolution. And, The privilege of being in a position to be able to know that is a privilege that should not be abused because that's a privilege given to you in a past life where you were allowed to have that experience so that you could learn that that was bad, right? So we shouldn't be judging because, you know, a lot of people, for instance, will criticise Donald Trump and he doesn't know. And, and he, you know, I can see, I can, I can uh, you know, look at what he's doing and predict that it's polarizing the country. This might actually be a good thing, by the way. It may actually force the Americans to actually start looking outside of themselves and, and, and fixing some of the things that, that they um, really need to fix. But you should never judge because even if you can see that something that a person's doing is not necessarily right, you can see that it's not necessarily right because you were given the privilege in a past life to have that experience and to work out for yourself that that was not right, mm. and that becomes part of your, of the of the knowledge that you carry with you. Uh, you might have even experienced it in this lifetime, which is you know life experience. So we need to be able to give everybody the opportunity to explore and to learn as well. Of course. I don't want to take that to the nth degree. If someone's trying to murder someone, we should have all had enough lifetimes now to know that that's not right. But I think this is why we shouldn't judge. We should never judge because we should always be mindful that people are evolving and need to be given the freedom to evolve. You can make suggestions. You can suggest that, you know, a particular path might have a particular outcome you have to be true to yourself when a person is being true to themselves you must never judge that
1: Well, wow, we've mm-hmm. certainly gone on quite a deep dive today so <laughs> and it's i could oh, no. talk to you for hours and hours how mm-hmm. can our listeners get in touch with you if they'd like to to book a healing or oh well um yeah uh that would be that would be lovely
0: i have I can give you my, uh, I can give you my business number. People can um, I need my glasses <laughs> people can contact me on harmony healing so it 's joe 's
1: harmony healing that 's right joe 's harmony
0: healing and in sydney, in sydney correct and and I, I mean, as I said, I can do skype calls I do long distance calls. I have um, clients overseas that contact okay. me. Uh, people can contact me by sms if they like and leave a, a message or voicemail but i do prefer sms generally okay. so uh, or they can just call me directly on uh, 0490 215 so that's
1: 0490 215 five four nine that is fantastic and I think yeah I'm sure that our audience will be happy to have that option open to them now what what would you like to end on what um, final key thought would you like to leave our listeners with today
0: well I think the most important one is approach life with an open heart what I mean by that is the power of who you are. You are an aspect of God. You have God's life force within you. God runs through your veins. Come to an understanding of that through your heart, through love. Open your heart to love. Allow your heart to shine like the sun. Approach all aspects of your life from your heart and hopefully that will lead you to your truth.
1: Thank you so very much for joining us on Spirit Sisters today, Jo, and sharing your absolutely amazing story with us. Thank you so, so much.
0: Thank you so much for the opportunity, Karina, and um, I wish all listeners uh, a heartfelt thank you for, for listening, listening to me. And God bless everyone.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Karina. Thank you for listening to Spirit Sisters the podcast, based on my best-selling book of the same name. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and will join me again next time for another intriguing conversation exploring mysteries and marvels. In the meantime, please subscribe so that you won't miss an episode. I also welcome your feedback, so please message me through my website, Karinamachado.com. Or find me on Facebook at Karina Machado Author. Perhaps you have your own encounter to share. If so, I'd love to hear it. After all, there's nothing more powerful than a story. <music>